Welcome to another episode of Dead Headspace. This is our fourth annual Halloween episode, and we are doing it with Tanana Do. Say hello. Hi, everybody. And we are doing it with Stephen Barnes. Say hello. Hello there. And uh, Brennan is with us today. So say hello, Brennan. Hello, everybody. Candice unfortunately had a little incident, um, and Ooh. she's bummed out. That she can't. She pulled her back uh, earlier Ooh, today. Ouch! She really wanted to let you know that she she's bummed that she couldn't talk uh, to you guys today. But hopefully, there's a next time. So, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I really wanted to have the two of you on because you guys do so much together. You guys have been together for was it like thirty years. Uh, Twenty five years. Twenty five. Oh. Okay. Oh, 2020. It, okay, I looked at this. 2028. I think is your thirtieth. Um, but that would guys... be 25. Oh, yeah, I'm bad at math, math. right? Hey, don't <laughs> ask me to do any math, I will not be correcting any numbers or even hearing them, really. So, that's we will be guesstimating, yeah. So, it just basically, that's my long way of saying, like, you guys do a podcast together, life writing, right for your life. You guys genuinely seem like you just have nothing but fun together. Um, it's not nothing but fun, but we have a huge amount of fun together. We have a huge yeah. amount of fun. As soon as yeah, we finish we really this, did. as soon as we finish this, we're going to eat dinner together, which is our nightly ritual, and we're going to finish watching Talk to Me for the second time. Nice. Yeah. So nice. yeah, we're looking forward to that. Have you guys? I wanted to wait to ask this, but I might as well ask now. Have either one of you seen No One Will Save You? Yes. Yeah. Both saw it. The alien one, right on Hulu. Yeah. Yeah, I just saw that two days ago and I, I thought it was fun i thought it would feel super gimmicky well, that's because... the, uh, the the silent one right right, the, right. Uh, only a couple lines of dialogue yeah, yeah. in the beginning Pre- i felt like i was kind of missing the dialogue but once it was underway i did not miss dialogue at all in the way yeah, that the... I, I liked it i didn't get into it as fully as tananarive did you know so sometimes Sometimes movies grab you and sometimes they don't. Hmm. Uh, I, I get the feeling that I would have gotten into it more deeply if I'd seen it in the theater. Mm-hmm. Um, at home, there are other things going on that can take my attention and my attention can wander. Like the and laptop. So, that yeah, that's right. On. That's <laughs> right. You know, so mo- movies, when I'm at home, movies have to work to get my attention. In the movie theater, I'm all in. You know, I just, you know, mm-hmm. I'm there. I'll give it total attention. You know, thrill me. If I totally you. get that. Yeah. Yeah, that is a challenge. It's so much of it. You know, you got to really be special to staying up these days. It, it creeped me out. I was watching like 1 a.m. and everyone, my the rest of my family was asleep. And whew, that silent part just really builds up. And the way that the story tells about her struggles before there's an alien involved, it, it's really compelling. It just, yeah, it's interesting. I can so, see that. I thought it was fun. Yeah, it's kind of interesting the way stories can work differently in different formats. Mm-hmm. You know, a short story, a novel, a play, a movie, television, seeing it in the theater, seeing it by yourself, seeing it with friends. Each of those accesses differently. Each of them triggers different things. So my, my honest sense is I probably didn't give it a fair chance. You know, I, I at some point I'm going to watch it again and probably get into it. You know, if we're sitting next to each other, I'll, I'll say things like, oh, honey, did you see that? Something moved in the window. Because <laughs> I'm trying to help, like, create bridges between the Facebook he's checking and the movie I we're watching. So. 
That's sometimes hilarious. it works. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Maybe next time, honey. You well, can watch. I didn't it. realize that was a deliberate choice for you. I like that. That's very kind of you, sweetheart. You, you like, learned something new about your life. Kindness That's awesome. with you that I'd never seen before. No, but he does the same thing when I'm not paying attention. Like he'll laugh. <laughs> he'll laugh at Robot Chicken to make sure I'm I'm uh, engaged. So yeah, so I see you. I see what you're doing. Bitch, put in his back. <laughs> <laughs> it's the humping robot. You you like this? Come on, watch it. <laughs> I, i'm really interested to hear about whatever you guys were going to talk about the beginning of the two of you because oh. you know I, i've listened to your guys' show and i think i know you both well enough to say that writing's always been just who you are so that's always yeah. been a part of you two but is it i mean i like paul and john i'm a fan of the beatles so i feel like separately they're great together they're just the best thing ever uh, i feel i, I saw uh, the Beatles first appearance on it's on, on the ed sullivan show oh wow okay that's amazing were, my sister and i were beetle maniacs so you know don't go there i, actually, go I, there. I legit didn't know that about you i, I wasn't yeah. trying to rise you with that i love the beetle beetle I, <laughs> okay that's amazing so i i feel i feel like with good couples that's like john and paul you know you're yeah. great people you have very similar interests and then you meet and you're like this is a new level let's not leave this place i, I want to know about the beginning with you two do you mind if i jump in first no, take it away t i was i was kind of stalking you for first before you were stalking me because uh someone mentioned his name to me and said oh do you know stephen barnes you should get together with him like because you know he's black you're black kind of thing really <laughs> it's what it was but you know, said some things about him that weren't true, you know, that like built him up, like almost like, uh, I don't even, like he's a bodybuilder and he's a millionaire and like all these things about him that made him sound less and less like someone I thought would even be interested in me. It was like, like, well, she, what she's leaving out is they made it sound as if I lived in the Playboy Mansion. Like a harem. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know if that's the one for me. But one thing they mentioned is that he had written for The Outer Limits, the uh, 80s version of The Outer Limits. And I'd never seen it. So I happened to be in a hotel room with my mom and we turned on the TV and there was this amazing episode of The Outer Limits starring Amanda Plummer about a scientist who invents a time machine so she can kill serial killers before they strike. And I was like, oh, this Outer Limits show is pretty awesome. If she wrote for this, he must be a pretty good writer. So I told my friend, I, I would like to meet this guy. And he said, that's his episode. So the serendipity was incredible. And I think within two weeks of hearing his name, I got an invitation to go to Clark Atlanta University for really a historic gathering it was probably the first black speculative fiction gathering of its kind octavia butler was there samuel r delaney was there stephen barnes jewel gomez i was just lucky to be invited and it was like sparks flying at first uh the first time i heard him speak it's just that that personality here in the podcast that kindness mm -hmm. that empathy for others wanting to just create a better world one person at a time all that was on stage and i was like wow um okay let's take this from my point of view yeah my first marriage <laughs> had just gone the way of the dodo i mean it just you know and i was i was a little bit at loose ends i didn't know what i was going to do but i was going through some emotional stuff and i worked through it and one of the one of the points of it was to regain my confidence in terms of dealing with the opposite sex i'd, I'd lost my confidence and it shattered so to to 
cut this short, let's say I definitely regained my confidence. It, it was more than regaining my confidence. So I was uh, I was supposed to co- go to Clark Atlanta University, and one of the participants there was Tanana Reeve Du, and a friend of mine uh, named Kim had mentioned her to me, and I'd seen a picture of her. It was a picture of, on one of her books, and I didn't like the picture. It was it was very stern. You know, I thought she was six and a half feet tall from that I picture. I thought you had to look authorly in your picture. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, you know, it was, it, she looked, she looked like, you know, she looked like a dominatrix as far as I was. <laughs> you know, so, you know, I kind of said, oh, all right. You know, so uh, I went to the conference and um, the, my luck with ladies was continuing when I when I went there, and I got some reactions from some of the the people there that that were almost disturbing. It was it was it was just too easy, you know. And I remember checking into my room, and I literally dropped to my knees, literally dropped to my knees, and I started praying. And I said, you know. I'm not that much of a praying person, but I said, God, you know, I, I get the game. You know, I get that, that, that whatever it is that I have done with myself, um, I could be the dog of all time. I could really run up the scores, but I don't want that. You know, what I want is a partner. I want someone I can really be myself with. I can drop my mask with, you know, I, I want, I want, I want love, you know, and if I have to wait the rest of my life, to find it, I will. And the next morning, literally, I'm going down to get breakfast, and the door next to me opens up, and here stumbles out this kind of kind of cute. Looks like she's about twenty five, um, you know, wearing jeans and a t shirt. And she's saying, are, "Are you Stephen Barnes?" I said, "Um, yeah." And she said, "Well, are you going down for breakfast?" I said, "Okay." You know, I said, "Can I have breakfast with you?" I said, "Okay, sure." She was just like, "So I think you know, it seems." pumping a lot of that fangirl energy. That so, was. <laughs> so we talked, and um, when we did the first, we did a signing at one point, and I had a chance to take a look at, she'd written, you know, she'd written a, a book. I didn't know, I had no ideas to the quality of her, of her craft, none. You know, when you have a community that's that small, you celebrate whatever you get. She might've been writing astrological poetry. Maybe she was writing, you know, dias- diasporic <laughs> limericks. I don't know. Um, so I took a look at the between and I read the first couple pages and it hit me that at creating a mimetic universe, creating depictions of the world as it is right now, she was already better than me. And I looked at this and I said, my God, you know, I've written 15 novels. I can't do that. You know, it's not putting myself down because I, there are other things that I do, but, but at that thing, so my whole thing was I wanted to adopt her like a little sister. You know, I said, I, I've learned so much and I've fought so much and I've done this, I've done that. Let me share what I've learned with her so she can have some advantages. So I, I literally had no sense of, of trying to mack on her, just none. You know, just, you know, the any sense of her being attractive was kind of behind glass. And I was I didn't want to be Harvey Weinstein. You know, what I'm talking about, yeah. you know, I, I wanted to be genuine with her and I did not want her to be afraid that I might have um, ulterior motives. So we uh, we all went out uh, eating, you know, at night. Now, like I said, Octavia was there and Chip Delaney was there. I'd known Octavia for many years uh, mm-hmm. and 
so it was a comfortable group and I, I felt I felt some of my walls coming down because I'd never been around a bunch of black people who liked Rocky and Bullwinkle before. I mean, it's like <laughs> I'd always been such a geek and to 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 be there, it was like a revelation. I, I was so happy to be there. It felt like coming home to mm-hmm. be honest. That's wonderful. And uh, we we went out eating, and there was a band playing, and we did, some of us were doing a little line dancing. And I, out of the corner of my eye, I noticed her. I noticed that she moved like a healthy animal. You know, I, her her sweater came down. I saw one shoulder. It was, it was a very nice shoulder. You know, but once not again, by accident either, baby. <laughs> you know, I, I was showing you some shoulder while I was dancing. There you go. Yeah, before you knew it, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, they all know, do. But what happened was this. Uh, I kept my distance. Uh, the last day that we were there, um, it, she gave a talk. I'd already given talk, uh, my talk there. She gave a talk. And she gave a talk about how she got Stephen King to give her a cover blurb on her first novel, My Soul to Keep. Second novel. Second novel, My Soul to Keep. You know, uh, the he played in a rock band with the humor columnist for the Miami Herald. Uh, what Dave was Barry. Dave Barry yeah. and the Rock Bottom Remainders. Was That's the, right. And they were playing yeah. at the Miami Book Fair. And she used that connection to, you know, and with her with her skills as a keyboard player, she asked him whether or not, um, you know, they she could play with them. He said They said that their keyboard player was going to be singing on Jailhouse Rock. You know, did she know it? She lied and said she did and went home and learned it real quick. Um, and she... I mean... <laughs> They're so, all three chords, so. <laughs> so she she went in there, and she was you know robosized to perfection, wearing a leather mini skirt, and I know she was looking great. I wasn't there. This was before I met her. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, the the rock bottom remainders is a place where very very peak of their craft, uh, you know, top level writers can get together and play, mm-hmm. drop their guard. So she got to get behind the guard in that sense. And got to know Stephen King and invited him to, you know, asked him whether he he would read her book. And I, w- I wouldn't say got to know. I, I said a few words to him and mm-hmm. shyly gave him a copy of The Between and then later followed up and asked if he would blurb my soul to keep by mail. So and he and he did nice. it. I'm sitting in the front row of the of the audience and I'm listening to this and I'm thinking to myself, she did a three wall bank shot on him she used this skill in this position to get to that position from which she could take a shot at that position. And I sat back and I said, she is really smart. And as if noticing that gave me permission, my next thought was, and she's really cute too. And I felt, every time I tell this story, I feel the same thing. I felt this chill go up my spine. I'd never felt anything like that in my life. And I sat back, I was going, <gasps> so, oh, Steve, you're in trouble. Hey. I never felt anything like that. And <laughs> I knew we, she was going to go back to Miami. I was going to go back to Washington State the next day. So we couldn't have been any further apart. So I said, I've got to get her attention. I've got to get her attention now. So I looked around the room and sitting two seats away from me was a woman with a baby on her lap. And I oh, looked at brother. her and said, Excuse me, ma'am. May I borrow your baby? And she, she looked at me. She said, "What?" I said, "You know, I don't want to take baby out of the room. I'm just a dad. I, I miss having a baby that size. I just like to 
play with the baby a little bit. Would that be okay? Now she knew me because you know I was one of the guests at the, at the thing. She'd seen me give a talk, and I suppose she assumed I wasn't John Wayne Gacy. And she lit me the baby. And I, Tanana Reeve is down off the stage signing autographs for her for a crush of fans. Uh, and I got down on the ba- on the floor in front of her and started on the floor and started playing with the baby. Now. I knew that there was no way a black professional woman in her 30s could look at an eligible black man who loved professional black man who loved children without her hind brain going ding, 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 ding. There was no way she was not going to be able to resist checking that out. Uh, we'll just say that the next day when we were f- flying out of the airport, we were sitting like a couple of kids holding hands, our heads sitting together, talking about how we could build an empire together. And basically, we got engaged within 72 hours of meeting. We got married a year later, and we've been married for 25 years. Yeah. I didn't even believe in love at first sight, but it was an incredible, an incredible experience. It really was. That's I I give thanks every day, you know, that that I had the common sense. I had the wisdom to recognize what was right in front of me. His room was right next door to me. (laughs) Yeah, it really was one of those things of, you know, if you build it, they will come. You know, (laughs) that that this was something where we had a chance and we were trains going in the opposite direction. And we had a small window of opportunity to see each other and to work this out. And I put everything else in my life on hold. I had a date with the woman that I had been most attracted to of any woman I'd ever met, you know, set up for the way home. And on the way home, my my return flight was into her city and I was a drive home from there. And I was laughing. I took her to dinner and she was dressed in the nines and just in a cloud of perfume. And man, she was gorgeous. And every man in the restaurant was like licking their chops. And I didn't care because I knew what I wanted. For the first time in my life, I knew it and I knew it clearly. And the rest of it was just a matter of how do I clear my way to this? Um, so that's, that's, there's more, but that's the story. I love it. I absolutely yeah. love it. That I, I enjoyed every minute of listening to the both of you talk about that. So thank you for sharing. <laughs> I saw I hope so. Because it's one of our favorite stories to tell. So. Absolutely. We you tell absolutely. it well. We we did a we actually did a, a class uh, the soulmate process soulmateprocess.com is that what that is it is uh, you know yeah we actually did a class teaching people how to set themselves up to meet their soulmates based on reverse engineering what we've done in our lives to meet mm-hmm. to be yeah. ready because trust me if I had met him when I was not ready that look on his face would have scared me right away it would have yeah, been I had one. I had blown a relationship by being too open Hmm. too you know too effusive um and i was so confused i did not understand i didn't understand what i didn't understand i I realized that having been married as long as i had i i'd been out of the game long enough that i didn't really know the game and so i had to what gave me the confidence to trust my instinct was losing any question that i could get laid anytime i wanted to that I, I literally had to solve that puzzle. Once I solved it, though, I realized I didn't care because what I saw was that once you understand what the mating game is on that level, you have to make some real decisions that that the people can say, I don't care. It's just for fun. We're just playing around. But at a very deep level, every time you sleep with anyone, the real question is, is this is this forever? 
is, is could, could you be the one? Is this when my life begins? Once you see that, at least what I saw was that women didn't tend to have trivial reactions to me. Their reactions were either, you know, Steve is okay or va va voom. And once you understand that va va voom thing, you realize they're not playing games. They're trying to figure out what's happening in their lives. So you have, you get to make some mistake. You get to make some decisions about the kind of human being you want to be. And one of the decisions I knew was I didn't want to play around with people's hearts anymore. I didn't want that. You know, I'd done that, been there, done that. And it starts to, to be, you know, what kind of human being are you? If you're an invisible man, you can walk into a bank and take money and get away with it. So who are you? Are you the kind of person who will go in that bank and take money? Or are you, are you going to, once you understand that there are no negative consequences externally for doing things that are not totally moral, you get to ask yourself what kind of person you are. And I knew the kind of person I wanted to be and the kind of person I wanted was the kind who could look in my wife's eyes every day and tell her that I love her and that I want to be a better man so that she never, ever, ever has cause to regret the trust that she extended to me. He walked into my apartment uh, the first time he visited me at home before we were married, and he saw a videotape of Day of the Triffids. And you were like, oh, my God, she is the one. <laughs> <laughs> that is exactly true. It's just so we and, and on top of that. So we just love hanging out. We mm. always hang out. Hanging out is just the most fun ever. So we married our best friends. But then on that, top of that. Beautiful. Right. But then on top of that, we get the collaboration piece. Yeah. We, know, we, I, we, I had, before we, we had before we got married, we had to make some decisions about that. Why don't you tell them a little bit about about? I would love to hear that. We don't we don't hear enough about that. Which about is collaborating. Another... Yeah. Well, I'll start at the end by saying where we are now. Like we had some conversations today, some conversations yesterday that I think years ago could have been prickly, you know, but instead we are both extremely open to each other. I think. The fact that we've been doing it for 25 plus years because we were collaborating before we got married, <laughs> you know, um, helps having been in our first writer's room together just before the strike in uh, January and February really helped, too, because that's a level of professional collaboration that gave us good habits. But in the beginning, it was rockier. It was rockier. We had our first fight trying to collaborate, you know, and I called him a name. And then we went to one session of counseling before we got married. And, and I was informed that you're not supposed to use that name in a relationship. And I was like, oh, I don't know. Okay, well, now I won't use that name ever, ever again. And I haven't. Uh, I'm not even really a name caller. But it's just that there's something about the storytelling process, something that had been extraordinarily personal to me. I've never collaborated with another partner. Uh, or yeah, at least... I've written, I've written, you know, maybe fifteen of my thirty novels with yeah. other. So you he know? was a. So I was very familiar with collaborating. That's how I got into the field was collaborating with Larry Niven and his partner Jerry Pornell. So I had to learn, you know, their rules of collaborating, and I passed those on to her. Um, but you know, the, the rule that I learned was that there has to be one person with the kill switch. One person takes lead on every project. And you can take a look at our books together. And the person who takes lead is the person whose name comes first on the book. So sometimes, And our scripts, too. Our scripts. Yeah, that's right. So sometimes her name comes first. Sometimes mine comes first. But the person with the kill switch actually has more responsibility to be to listen 
more responsibility because they know that it's going to be the other person's turn next. So you want to be very, very considerate. Um, but the other thing and the most important one is that the relationship always comes first. Mm-hmm. The relationship is never on the line. There will never be a time when one of us implies that love or intimacy is connected to whether or not you agree with me, that 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 the day that one of us does that is the day that we can't work together anymore. And that's easier said than done. I mean, it sounds pretty obvious, but it's also easier said than done because mm. especially in past years, there were times we're going to bed still irritated yes. from a story conversation. And you're not feeling sexy when you're irritated. That's right. You know, have so, when, when the that seduction spiral that kind of can start, you know, a couple of days ahead of time and you're starting to flirt and you're starting to you know, be more aware of each other and you're, mm, mm, gets interrupted because one you bad have, meeting. That's right. Yes, it can. Yes, it can. But one of the things that we do and, you know, we have a daily meeting. Mm-hmm. During which we we look at the day, we look at the we actually look at the day, and we look at the next two weeks, and we go over what we're doing. But more importantly than that, uh, from a a uh, a teacher who is a Taoist priest and martial artist and a PhD in psychology, who is a, a, a performance coach therapist that I was I was going to via Zoom and other things, taught me something called the blessing dance, which is done in Sufi communities and it is just it's a a, 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 basically it is recommitting to the marriage every day in a very specific way and we do that five days a week um and it's it's critical because one of the things is some things that are being said or we're looking into each other's eyes and i can tell how focused I am, how present I am, by whether or not I'm just falling into her eyes, or I can feel when my mind is distracted, I'm thinking about other stuff, you know, and to a huge degree, what we have to offer each other is our presence. Mm-hmm. It's that sense of being totally there. And I know that if I if, if we have that as, as a, a go-to, something that we do every day, and I can use that as kind of a barometer, of how present I am, then the hope is that whatever types of problems might develop into major problems down the line, we can see that it's a seed of it now, and we can root it out now, because this is it. I'm, I'm not looking, neither of us are looking for the back door, neither mm-hmm. of us are looking for what's next. This is the love of my life. And, you know, if she got hit by a meteor, I'm sure I'd probably figure something out. But if I mess this marriage up, it's over for me. You know, because the universe brought me something that was perfect for me. Mm -hmm. I must take care of this. That is incredible. Yeah, um, kind of felt that that's how you guys felt about each other, which is amazing. Um, I feel like there might be, whether they're married, thinking about it, never been even with someone. They hear you're working at five days a week and they're like, that's a lot of work. But but it's a marriage that's that that's raising right. kids is the hardest thing you can do and it's worth that's it because right. it's see... a partnership yeah it, and to... you're even yeah. go ahead no i was just going to say either you're doing the work or you're living with the deficiency of the work which mm. is not fun yeah you know it has to be recreated it's like it's like fitness mm-hmm. you know you can't get fit enough that you can stop working out no you know, it's like uh you know uh 
John Steinbeck, and something I quote frequently in his book, Once There Was a War, he's a war correspondent. He talks about the expression on the Navy cook's face, you know, feeding thousands of men, said a look on his face when he realized that, quote unquote, there is no way to feed a man once and for all. You know, <laughs> there's no way to get to the end of the work that needs to be done in a marriage or in, in fatherhood mm -hmm. or as a writer, as an artist, you know, for me, or as a martial artist, that there is a constant sharpening of tools. There is, for me, the constant scraping away of the bugs on the on the windshield of life so I can see this in amazing territory that I'm passing through and this amazing partner with me. I mean, look at her. And you, 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 you read what she reads. And what I can tell you is that the way she seems to be right now, this is who she is. She's not putting it on for you, and we're not putting it on for you. We yeah. found something, mm -hmm. and the day that I forget the value of what I found, I'm the biggest fool God ever let live. And and the, the opening up of the process, I mean, I still primarily write solo novels and yeah. short stories. We've done some collaborations. Our first short story collaboration was Danger Word which is celebrating its 10th anniversary as a short film this year, because that was also our first wow. crowdfunded project together. Congrats, 10 years guys. ago. Thank okay. you. Um, starring Frankie Faison. www.dangerwordfilm.com. You can see it for free. Yeah, it's up there for free. Um, he wanted me to have that experience of being on set as someone who had already been on set. And now post WGA strike, and one of the things they were striking over was that the system was so broken that writers weren't able to go on set anymore and that's how you become a showrunner that's how you cultivate the next generation so he created that we created wanted, that together 10 I years ago not only not only for her to have a chance to learn what it's like to have somebody speaking your words but i wanted to see how she reacted under pressure mm. you know, and what i saw was that under pressure at like two o'clock in the morning or late late at night late at night late at night uh, exhausted I watched her come up with a brilliant solution for a problem that she didn't even realize how smart it was that saved the entire production. So that was, I was able to kind of say, yeah, she's the real thing. There she was is amazing. Yeah. That, she, and, you know, a lot of what I envisioned for us early on was, okay, I had been holding Hollywood at a bit of a distance but starting with The Between, and especially with My Soul to Keep, which was immediately optioned by Samuel Goldwyn Productions, and then it was a Fox Searchlight for years. Blair Underwood, the actor, had it for 10 years, I believe, uh, year Holy after shit. year. He was optioning that. Yeah, he wanted to be David Dawi, the uh, immortal wow. in that story, <laughs> and would have been incredible, might I say. But I, I knew that with Steve's experience with screenwriting and pitching, which I had done, that the two of us together in the room would do better than me alone, <laughs> certainly. And over, and it's been that over these many years, yeah, I have my own ideas and I feel very strongly about my stories, but I have learned reliably that when I listen to Steve's ideas, he's coming from a slightly different direction. He's thinking it through in a slightly different way. And if I can move away from sort of my initial inspiration and let his vision in, it can really pop like, oh shoot, that well, would be yeah. great. There are going to be differences in the way we approach it just because we're different people. There's the male-female dynamic. And there's also the fact that I'm specifically a trained science fiction novelist that, that 
working with Niven and Pornell were specifically about this is how a science fiction writer thinks. And that got hammered into me, which is different mm. from the way a horror novelist thinks, different from a fantasist, for instance, that fantasy and science fiction, I'm not suggesting one is more difficult than the other, not at all, but they're different in the sense that science fiction is more about the head and fantasy is more about the heart. It's about the way the different symbols work together to create mm. an emotional response. Horror, of course, is a, is a piece of literature that specializes in producing the emotion of fear. So and it can be fiction, horror, psychological stuff, anything else. Absolutely. And we've done um, a great deal of horror together. Danger Word is a zombie horror. The t- uh, horror Noir, the anthology movie, we co-wrote two of those segments. One has my name first, an adaptation of my short story, The Lake, and one has his name first, which is uh, an adaptation of a story he took lead on called Fugue State, which had Tony Todd and Rachel True in it, which was yeah. just incredible. It's so much fun. You know, and Hollywood, Hollywood is a very specific game. And basically, you need to have the head for it, the heart for it, and the body for it. The, 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 the energy, the physical energy, the ability to do conversational jazz in a room, when to be able to riff off things that people are going to say. Um, hmm. The ability to collaborate, because you're never going to get something across that is exactly what was in your head, okay? If you can, if you can juke, if you can bob and weave, if you can find, figure out who the power people in the room are and, and make sure that, that you are including some of their ideas, what you're doing, so everybody is feeling invested in your project. If you can play the politics as well as the structural dynamics of this, it is possible to make an obscene amount of money. That, that you're getting paid not just for your skill, but your skill at applying your skill, your skill at navigating the system. And there is a tremendous amount of money. Not only that, but like the WGA, the stuff that the WGA just won and were fighting for. There's no other writers guild in, in, in America that has anything close to that. I mean, the, the science fiction writers of America are happy if they can put together a couple thousand dollars for one of the great science fiction writers having a medical emergency. And it's mm-hmm. wonderful they can do that. The WGA has a health plan and it's actually yeah. one of the best you know, in, in, in the country. But I, mean, I will they, say, oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. I was just gonna, it is a tough club to get into. Yeah. And for the first 20 years of our marriage, it really did feel kind of like an uphill slog. I mean, we we had some great wins. We sold our first feature film scripts during that time, uh, an adaptation of The Good House to Fox Searchlight. It's available again, by the way, <laughs> producer, <laughs> my, my haunted house novel. Um, if anybody's listening. If I... we, we saw that one. Wink, yeah. wink. Uh, um, we, nudge, nudge, say no more, say no more. <laughs> we, had, we, had some, we had some, oh, the good, yeah, we had some big wins and some opportunities, but nothing even close to regular payments as Jeez. screenwriters until post get out black panther it really changed the industry Holy in some shit. huge ways yeah really? you know I, in huge ways i mean just to be honest with you when when i wrote my my third novel which is my first solo novel it's called street lethal it was done when i was about it was done about 40 years ago okay and the the lead character was described as being as dark as a zulu and they put a white guy on the cover and this this was make no mistake. And I was for Octavia Butler and I were the only black science fiction writers in the world, as far as we could determine, for 20 years. So we were dealing with 
with a lot of things that had nothing to do with with our talent per se or our capacity per se we were dealing with the fact that society was still was dealing with with mythologies about race that were not to our advantage let's just put it that way and well so put, darling well put i that's I, fucking crazy it's i mean look man well you know, i'm from the, first, the i grew up in the 90s so like yeah. I, that's a different world but do you man. realize that the you know i often say this the first the first movie the first theatrical motion picture that ever depicted slavery directly with the slaves as the central characters was probably Django Unchained. That it had been 150 wow. years since slavery, but you know, movies like Amistad and and uh, you know, so forth and so on. There were no slaves on screen. You know, the beloved, no slave. There were ex-slaves or people on their way to being slaves. But mm. the, the institution itself was the third rail in American culture. It wasn't until you know a crazy man named Quentin Tarantino, you know, and and. Uh, uh, the the uh, Reggie Hudlin, the executive producer, one of the executive producers, made the comment once that that there were maybe four directors in the world who had the juice to get Django made, and three of them wouldn't do it. So it it, it required a lot of time, and I had to sit back and and ask myself. It, it hurt. It hurt hugely. But there is a, a very calculating part of me that if I have one emotional advantage that I think is is the greatest one is. I will not quit. Mm. I just won't. And it's damaged me at times, no question about it. But I looked at this and it was definitely a, I am not going to let these bastards win. And it's not even a master to, matter of bastardy because no, there was nobody to blame. Everybody blamed someone else. So I just took the position that the problem is that human beings like to see themselves. And that I happened to be on the losing end of that equation. In that way, I didn't have to blame anybody or have bad feelings that that were not called for there. So I had to ask myself, how long did I think it was going to take for the culture to change enough for me to be able to write stories that, that meant something to me? Get Out and Black Panther, uh, you know, the the um, the unit with Dennis Haysbert, mm-hmm. uh, Creed in, in 2015, these the 21st century is actually kicking in in terms of representation on screen in terms of of you know the the obama presidency was a sign that things that things were shifting and had shifted it still isn't wonderful but i can tell you that tanana in that sense is a secret weapon it, because not only is she so good hmm. but she is she also is able to take advantage of the of the black girl magic network there are lots of black female executives in hollywood and you know that had to help lift me when i was an author a lot of my readers were black women before the horror community right. discovered me the black women's book clubs discovered me and it's really only mm. been again not soon before get out that more mainstream horror readers started to discover my work i like to credit people like john joseph adams at nightmare magazine reprinting my stories that way but yeah um even you know a younger jordan peele was looking at the success of a movie like straight out of compton which made a hundred million dollars or more uh, mm. and thought huh so this it, it can happen a, a black story can make that kind of money 
And uh, he was working on this script, you know, Get Out. And when he first started working on it, it was just about being the odd person out with a group of friends and that uncomfortable feeling you get when it's awkward and you don't really know everybody. A draft or so later, he realized, oh, this is about race. (laughs) And the rest is off to the races, you know, because that one watershed. I mean, yes, Black Panther came right behind it. Yes, there's been a lot of amazing horror coming out in the past few years from a, a, a big variety of writers from Stephen Graham Jones, Sylvia Moreno Garcia, um, the list, uh, Victor Laval, of course, the changeling is now on, on, on TV. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of factors. It's not all Jordan Peele, but I'm telling you just to have that vocabulary, yeah. first of all, to understand, Oh, black horror is a thing because before that, nobody believe me was tracking that black there's, horror was a thing. Some advantages now. I think that for people, for the very first time in my entire life, there may, it might be true that there's actually some advantages to being black. If you're in a very specific situation, have certain credentials, have, maneuvered yourself into certain spaces there is a hunger because what what the way i look at it is that for 300 years a particular lie was sold america about what we were and as that lie breaks down i think that there is a curiosity well if you're not the subhumans that we were that our country was based on you know on on that belief that you were these poor creatures that christianity was going to uplift by enslaving you and doing you the favor of impregnating your women um if you're not that then who are you and i think that that the question of that is accompanied by a lot of fear anger pain guilt horror then and comedy are set up perfectly to take advantage of that curiosity that that cultural energy because what we're trying to figure out is how do we discharge that energy so we can get on with the business of having a country and i think that a lot of our political upheavals right now are about i can see how it relates to that racial adjustment there are others too that have to do with gender and gender issues and and financial things and you know the social safety and yeah that's all true but i can look at this particular piece and it's a little bit like an earthquake where a seismic pressure builds up between tectonic plates and it is released through an eruption that laughter and screams are both releases of tension Mm. so that the implicit tension the unspoken tension that exists between white and black people if we can release some of that with laughter and screams we're doing the social good and we're, we're helping to create a better world for our own children and our own grandchildren and hopefully making a ton of money in the process. You know, I, I want to go back to something you said. It can be an advantage as long as they didn't just hire another black person or yeah. just to get another yeah. black project. Then it's right. totally, then that, that box is checked off and unfortunately, but we're still there. But even given that, there have been such huge strides. Just at the time the strike's been going on, there were so many projects I wanted to talk about that were either uh, the blackening, for example, I thought was really, really Talk about fun. all of them on on this show right now. Just, I mean, <laughs> it's you know, Shaun of the Dead is a high bar. Maybe it's not there, but what it did share in common with Shaun of the Dead was there were whole moments where you could forget it was a comedy, or you could forget it was horror mm. because it was thoroughly funny and thoroughly scary in a way that I think Shaun of the Dead 
uh, is probably the best at that of any movie. Beautiful, beautiful mix of, sure. of humor and fear. Yeah, just amazing. Um, and they had really unique transitional shots with the sound effects that yes. made it comedic. But and, and the very last shot of that movie, you're talking you know, about Shaun of the Dead. Shaun of the Dead, yeah. Right. Shaun, of the Dead. Yeah. Yeah, Shaun of the Dead is one of the best bromances ever. Yeah, true. I mean, you know, I it, and, to it, quote, and to quote Nick, Nick, okay, that's in the movie. That's with the bromance. Yep, yep. Now it's it's a brilliant piece of work. Um, what we're at a place right now where uh, I, you know, to be honest, that working with Tananari, if I can get into some rooms where I can't get by myself, I haven't been able to get by myself. Nice. Uh, and that working together, I think we, if the better we, you know, talking about the end of the strike, I knew that when the strike ended, there were going to be opportunities. It's going to be a window of opportunity. There's going to be about a year in which there's a lot of stuff going on and if we are prepared with the to do the best work of our lives mm-hmm. um, that we have a chance to move into some of those spaces and not only move our own career forward but create unique product unique entertainments to speak our hearts the little kid inside me that knew i was going to have to wait maybe 30 years to be able to tell my stories I, it'd be impossible for me to tell you how much stuff I did to keep my heart alive because I did not want to become embittered. You know, I did not want to feel, well, the gates are open now, but I'm too old to hobble through them. You know, no, no, no. It was like, what do I have to do? What do I have to do? And I believe that this is that moment. Yeah. And as this, you say, this that, is the moment. honey, there are people who did not make it. Uh, L.A. Banks, who wrote a vi- vampire huntress series long before her time passed away years ago. Um, I knew another writer, Elon Harris, who literally died pitching in Hollywood in a hotel. So mm-hmm. that is re- Octavia Butler never lived to see an mm-hmm. adaptation. Sure. Right. Mm-hmm. So so if that's your dream, it, it's 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 like a, a mirage to some people, you know, because when I first started publishing, I remember coming back to my office and I had phone messages both from Spike Lee's 40 Acres and a Mule. <laughs> And the production company that did the original League of Their Own, both of them wanting to option the between. I felt like I had walked through this weird portal now. Holy shit. Where, oh my God, Hollywood's literally knocking on my door. But guess what? I didn't have an adaptation that actually got produced until 2021. Holy you know, shit. one of the things that is yeah. interesting is that uh, Tanana Reeve, I've, I've often said that she is the best prepared human being for the career that she wanted, that I've ever met. That mm. her, her level of internal integration, she has permission to win. And she has the skills to win. And she also has the natural networking thing. She's very likable, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. so it's, you know, it was very clear to me that she had what it took. And that was why I said, I'm going to adopt her like a little sister. You know, but once I realized, oh my God, you know, I'm in love with this woman. Oh, I was going to say, it was purely a business decision. I said, oh, oh she's no, going to make me rich. 
You know, I don't know what's going on in your family, but uh, <laughs> that's not what uh, happened here. But, you know, I don't I get am, yourself in trouble, mister. I am very, <laughs> very excited. Here's an example of, of having my cake and eating it, too. I have a novel coming out actually on Halloween called The Reformatory. Yes, we were going to get to that. I promise. Yeah, The Reformatory <laughs> took me seven years to write. It's based in real family history. It was delayed because of COVID and it literally was optioned before it was published. It's been optioned for like a couple years. And so even though I wrote it as a novel by myself, Steve and I spent a good year and a half coming up with a television pitch for a series version, coming up with a pilot story, coming up with ideas that aren't in the novel and that I could have added, but it didn't feel like, no, the novel is good like it is, but the series is a little bit different. So yeah, it makes way more sense to do this or do that. And really quickly, since, you know, I do have a book coming out actually on Halloween. Um, it's based loosely on family history. I found out soon after my mother passed away, gosh, more than 10 years ago now, that she had an uncle who at the age of 15 died at the uh, Dozier School for Boys in Mariana, Florida, which if you research Dozier, tons of articles about Dozier, a documentary, um, Colson Whitehead's The Nickel Boys is also set in a fictitious Dozier, mm. which he wrote later, you know. <laughs> um, but yeah, back in 2013, I heard about this and I heard testimony from survivors of this terrible place, which was basically a segregated juvenile prison masquerading as a school. But they also would put them to work and hire them out to farmers and all kinds of stuff. So it was like a private work farm slash school slash prison for children from very very young up to the age of 21 and uh from what i hear don't be a football star they'll never let you go you know it because it it, it was a it competed against other schools it was really one of the bedrocks of this town was this place it, it provided so many jobs and so many services and somewhere in that system is this child who like many other children never went home there's literally a cemetery on the grounds and I, as soon as I heard the story, I knew I wanted to write about it, but not as a memoir, because I felt it wasn't my story to tell. He had died in 1937, so the people who knew him were long gone also. So it's not that I wanted to literally recreate the life of Robert Stevens. It's more the spirit of his life. I named the character Robert Stevens. I made him 12 instead of 15 to make him even more sympathetic and innocent. And I said it in 1950 because I know that era better from my my mother's stories before she passed away. We did a memoir together and, and that era was in my head more vividly mm. than 19, the 1930s. So yeah, that's the reformatory. That's my spiel. Brandon, you want to go for it? Go ahead, yeah, Brian. I want to actually, oddly enough, I want to throw a question to uh, Stephen. Um, Stephen, I, I've heard you talk about Donna Reeves uh, work and how she just has this, ability to access emotions and associate with pain and joy and that's that just shines through so clearly in this novel and i'd love to hear kind of your take on that having read this book um what exactly i'm not sure exactly what you're asking me so where, where tanana reeve is basically able to oh Okay. Remember I talked about the internal integration. It goes beyond her psychology into her politics mm -hmm. and her sociology. 
that that because I think her parents raised her to be very, very aware politically and active and to be, you know, down for the struggle. I think that she very naturally takes elements of things that are going on in in the social world, in the political world, and weaves them effortlessly into what she's doing. It's not an affect. It's not a technique. This is really who she is. She really does care about these things this much. She spends a, a, a good chunk of her phone time specifically helping other people and coordinating that help with other people and finding ways to give back to the community. Mm. As a result, her stories are going to have, a, 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 they're going to reverberate in a different way. She's not talking at people. She's having a discussion with them about what is the world and what is this world that we are creating. It's the best kind of politics. It's politics that, that, that runs specifically from the heart, that it's politics in retrospect, you know, as opposed to let me, let me stick this idea in here like cloves in a ham. She's, she's constantly asking, because I think that she's very aware of how much the world gave her, contributed to her um nurtured her supported her so it's very natural for her to want to give back she feels that connection to the world i think that all artists you know art to me is self-expression with a capital s successful art is self-expression plus communication somebody on the other end hears what you're saying has an emotional response and gives you money for it that becomes a success you know you can support yourself so you don't have to you know flip burgers at mcdonald's you know you can actually spend the time working i think that she is it's impossible for me to totally separate how i feel about her as as my baby from what i think about her as a talent Mm -hmm. but i think that she i think she is in in some very interesting ways a generational talent uh and that that intellect and emotion and wisdom and a sense of of who she is in the world just all aligns there's nothing that's fighting itself that's you know she fights herself on other on other ways you know it's not the place or time for it but you know the the same psychological struggles emotional struggles relationships that everybody has are going to be present in every person but in terms of her writing when she sits down to write a story it's turtles all the way down man i mean it's it's she she is finding something to root her stories in that is connected socially. She finds something to connect with it that touches her emotionally. She finds ways to express it that is connected with her her literary background. She's got a, a master's in Nigerian literature. So it's like it's all there. You know what I'm saying? Um, and it's it's not that it's effortless because it's taken obviously taken her a massive amount of work and she still has to do a massive amount of work for it. But the path that she's on in terms of what she's doing is, I think, I think that she could have a conversation with any of the greatest writers that we've had, and they would recognize her as a kindred spirit. Mm-hmm. That's what I think about tonight. Aw, that's so sweet. <laughs> and yet, when I do meet these writers, I remain tongue-tied. Yeah, because you have you have genuine, you genuinely feel awe <laughs> of them. Well, we met Stephen King. It was so funny because the first time I hadn't, uh, I don't think I was even engaged to Steve the first time. I have to look back at that. But the second time I played with the Rockland Remainders, he was there. My stepdaughter was there. 
as usual, I'm just like, humana, da, 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 humana, humana, humana. <laughs> and Steve was like literally chatting with him, like talking about Clive Barker and his work. And I, I don't go into it. But no, know. I won't. I won't. <laughs> I mean, it's, he said positive things, but but yeah, he's just, but he's like getting granular with Stephen King with complete comfort and ease. And I'm like, he did the same thing with Steven Spielberg. Soon after we met, we moved to LA, we were at the Fox Commissary. And we were at a table with Forrest Whitaker because he was attached as a producer on the good or director of the good house at the time. That's awesome. And when Steven Spielberg walked in, he said, Oh, do you want to be introduced to Steven Spielberg? So we said, yes. Once again, I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to have nothing to say. <laughs> Steve is talking to him about secret stuff. Like Spielberg is telling <laughs> yes. him secret Spielberg, stuff. Spielberg <laughs> secretly directed the anim the animatics for three sequences in, in the last star Wars movie. You know, the, like, the, 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 the uh, episode three. And we, and we were just talking about it. How does he get people? They're I don't, just like, I don't get tongue tied with people. Uh, Last person I got tongue tied with was Stan Lee. You know, I, I was on a panel with him and I have to admit, you know, I wasn't tongue tied, but we got along. We were trading jokes. We we're having fun on the panel. And he invited me to come to Marvel and have lunch with him. I couldn't do it. <laughs> I could not do it. Wow. I, I, I get it, that. I totally I just, get that. It's, I, could, I could not get it together. And I don't feel bad about it because at least I, I had that hour with him on the panel, you know? Yeah. You know, it was, it was, I got, I got to talk to Stan, you know, and it's, life has been so kind to me in that sense. But no, people don't, don't intimidate me that way. I can be incredibly impressed by people. I've met some insanely impressive human beings, but I generally look at them as just being further along the same path that I'm on. Mm. You know, I, I mean, I mean, never is, catch up with them. It's costing me, you know. I mean, I was so shy around Octavia Butler that it literally <laughs> made it into her papers. Tanana won't talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's when you know you've taken it too far. So, yeah. uh, and it's so painful because, oh my God, of course, I would have loved to be a girlfriend where I'm like, oh, hey, are you watching? I don't know what was on in those days. Are you watching this or watching that? Which, of course, she would not have been. She would have been writing. <laughs> I was like that with Peter Straub. He's super nice. Mm, he he was. Brian and I got to talk to him, but like in my head, I go, "You're a different kind of writer." You're yeah, just... well, look, look, man. He was so I've sweet. Had, I've had yeah, the chance was. to meet some of the some great masters in different fields, mm -hmm. and um, the truth is that there's one thing that is true about these people. They're always learning, they're always doing, and they're always teaching. Mm. And if you talk to one of them, they don't see you at, in comparison to them. Mm -mm. What they see is the path that they're on. Mm -hmm. Their question is going is not going to be what did you do as much as what are you working on? Mm -hmm. You know, and it's like you know I've had a chance to had three hours with a man who might be the, the greatest martial arts instructor who ever lived. And his whole thing is, well, you know, how are you honing your skills, Steve? You know, what are you doing? Show me what you got. You know, let's 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 talk about this. You know, it, it, when you meet, you know, these great writers, these people, if one of the things that they need is for you not to objectify them, mm. for you not to to think that they're some other species, because they're not. And the fact that people do that actually creates loneliness. Mm. In them. You know, they they want to be. They'd, they'd love to be around their buddies. They'd love to be around people who understand that 
that they're just trying to walk this path like the writers that they admired and who were doing it like the writers they admired. There is no place to get to. There is a path of action and emotion. And all it, it once mastery is you have all the skills that you need to perform at the level of unconscious competence so that you can perform your skills under pressure. Once you have that and have committed to your path for a lifetime, you are on the path of mastery. Mm. Mastery then is a, a, a verb, not a noun. It's a vector, not a position. And when you meet other masters, all they want to know is, what does the territory look like where you are? This is what the territory looks like where I am. We're both walking on it. They could be horizons distant from you. But if the path loops back around so that you have a chance to spend a few minutes with them, you know, just understand that, that what they really want from you is, is your light, is that sense of, you know, you love this thing, they love this thing. Isn't this thing wonderful? Ray Bradbury was so kind to young writers. Mm. Uh, it all he, it was just the, do you love this too? You do? Then you're a brother, you're a sister. It's as simple as that. That's how I feel for sure. I love young writers. And then, you know, I don't teach an, an MFA program anymore, but I was very invigorated by their work when I did. They keep you sharp and they help you remember what you loved about it when you first started. Joe Lansdale does that. I talked to him a lot, so that's why I'm thinking of him, but he does that. I've he does heard that, that a lot. He, well, for example, I've told him, my, the anthology's out now. It came out last week, but the first anthology I edited, you know, the, you go through ups and downs with stuff, but um, he, uh, you know, I called him. He's just telling me, you got this. Just hearing that from someone that's been through it, you know, that makes the world of a difference to whoever's on the receiving end. So, yeah, to now you've, you've, you've definitely, you're, you're someone that does it all the time. Stephen King, I know, does it all the time like the tweets if you get tweeted by <laughs> he mentions you in tweet i mean it's not a blur but like it's kind of the next best thing as a writer or i was i was pretty shocked when he responded to my birthday yeah, tweet. that was awesome i saw that it was awesome for you. you the funny part is you know and, and he doesn't quote tweet a lot of people in my experience yeah. he's doing it more and more lately i'm noticing but uh, so i expected it to just go up into the void but as the day went on, I noticed that he was responding to other people's birthday greetings. And I was starting to feel a little, you know, like, oh, whatever. I didn't get it. And then, and then I went to his page and he had already like an hour before had said, and what a career it's been. And I was like, whoa, yeah. Stephen King tweeted me. I didn't even know it. So that's so, that's that so was, cool. Uh, he is, Stephen King is definitely a writer. You know, yeah. he's he's an author, yeah, but more vastly more important that he is a writer. He lives yeah. in that space. He loves that space. He loves this thing, and that that ability to love something over time, as far as I'm concerned, that is the single most important characteristic in people who become excellent. They loved something long enough to become good at it. Absolutely, yeah, that's a great point. Um, thumbs up on that tonight uh yeah so i really want to hit on some more of the reformatory and then we'll say uh or good night um i 
just was lost in the story. Obviously, there's some gut wrenching stuff. The whole thing's terrible, especially that's based on reality. But uh, I gotta say, there's probably a fine line where, because you're writing historical fiction, so I'm sure you had to put in a good amount of research for this. He said it took seven years, but like it, it's a big book. It's like 560 words, I think it was. And pages, uh, yeah, it's huge. <laughs> it doesn't feel like it. Like I'm not kissing butt. Like you make your you do this with all the writing I've I've noticed, but you keep your stuff lean. Um, that's not easy to do on a 300 page book. How the hell did you do that for? <laughs> How'd you do uh, that? For I'll tell you one thing. It, it did not feel lean while I was working on it. <laughs> I'll tell you that. Um, that makes sense at all. I, there is definitely a point where I know it kicked into high gear for me, where I like took off all my breaks mm-hmm. and I and I just I had outlined all the way to the end and I was just racing after a certain point. It was hard to write up to Robert's first night in the facility. Those were the toughest scenes because everything was new. What's the kitchen look like? What's the dorm room look like? And what was incredibly helpful was that I had photographs in the Florida archives where I could literally see, oh, this is what the kitchen looked like. This is what the bunk rooms look like. And that's a huge advantage in writing historical fiction is using real people. But in terms of the leanness, uh, it, I, I don't I don't have a, a real answer for that, except maybe it's the protagonist point of view. Because I'm using child narrators, one Mm. who's 12 and one who's 16, 17. And that is the way they look at the world. They don't have a whole lot of extra context and stuff wrapped up in their daily walk, right? So a child, and Robert is still a child, even though he's in a horrible circumstance. If there's a radio playing a comedy, he's going to sit with the other boys and try to laugh at it. That, I think, is his superpower uh, as the Mm. protagonist of the story is that, yes, he is traumatized. And, yes, this is a horrible situation, but he has just enough actual childlike optimism that that part of a child that wants to make a game out of things, that part of a child that, oh, you're a kid, I'm a kid, you're nice to me, I'm nice to you, we can be friends, you know, that that you have up to a certain age. We lose that as Mm -hmm. we get older. We have all these, these hopes we have to jump through. But... I really did want to capture that part to counterbalance the weight of the history is really the worst character in this story mm-hmm. and, and adding um, hates and ghosts and sort of a hate subculture in a way I had never done before was very fun. And please don't spoil it. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm going to say one more thing and then Brandon jump in. Haints was a new term to me. Um, I, I seriously never heard of it. I've heard of specters and obviously ghosts, but um I think that you I'm trying to figure out how to not spoil it. And I think this is tell call me out if this is, but I don't think it is. Uh, okay. The way that you write Haynes, it's it's psychological. I think it's a psychological horror book, too. That might be obvious, but it's because of like. Hmm, tell me if this is too much, but you, you can't tell the difference between them and real people. Oh, uh, right. Well, that's left over from when I was uh, inspired to write my book, Joplin's Ghost. Mm. I had been at the Scott Joplin house and I uh, met the former curator and he really believed that the place was haunted. OK, so I've never had a ghost experience, but I, I listened very carefully when other people tell me their experiences. Mm. And his assertion was that when he passed a room and thought he saw a ghost at the, a man at the window, 
and then turned right back around and said, oh, it's closing time, but the man was gone. He didn't look hazy. He didn't look fuzzy. He There was nothing about the man, he thought, that gave away that he wasn't real. He just saw a flesh and blood person standing there. He turned around, the person was gone. So I thought that is an interesting interpretation of what Haints might be like. And yeah, so yeah, you do get all manner of hates. You get floaty hates, and you know, you get the, the hates that can walk through a wall and all the things that frighten us. But what's even anyway? I'll leave it at that. I'll leave it at that. Leave I it at that. <laughs> yep. Brennan, you um, got anything, or you want to jump to final it, word thoughts? Yeah, no, I certainly. You guys have both been very, very generous with your time, and we won't take much more of it. But I did want to just kind of throw out there that as. Uh, much as I enjoy a ghost story, this is a ghost story where the monsters are very human and mm. the antagonist is, uh, he, he, I don't want to say he comes off as cartoonish because he doesn't, but it's absolutely a level of evil that outside of that historical context could kind of reach that point, but because it is so grounded in that historical fiction it's just it makes the hair stand up on your arms it makes you know it, it runs a chill up your spine it's it's a great book and i think people are going to really love it well thank you so much i tried to make him as likable as possible i mean <laughs> he is he's really like is this dude not only has been responsible, if not directly responsible, then certainly by his authority, responsible for the deaths of like so many children. But then he's gonna hunt down their ghosts too. I mean, that is about as evil as an SOB can get. But but he's polite, you know, he's not a name caller. He's he's I tried to give him some redeeming qualities. He's actually a little bit of a progressive in some way. Well rounded. Jeez. <laughs> or at least he pretends. Yeah, he's a hell of a guy. <laughs> he's a hell of a guy. Yeah, yeah. But anyway. Too bad Jimmy Stewart isn't still alive. Oh, uh, the play that. Oh, that would have been. <laughs> it would have been great in that role. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I even wanted to make the point in the novel that you can't blame what happened at that facility just on one person. And even in mm. that story, Gloria hates the idea that people will think it was all just the fault of one person because it's not there's so much complicity to go around but having said that when you're writing a horror novel you need a monster and and certainly he seemed like a good candidate to me uh tanan reeve final thoughts on anything (laughs) i'm just i'm just just waiting for the book to come out i'm so excited that anyone has read it including (laughs) including you so yay that people are reading it I can't wait uh, to see what the response is. And I'm just really looking forward to jumping back into my uh, my screenwriting collaborations with Steve. Awesome. Steve, do you have any final thoughts? Buy Tanana Reeves' book. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. For me, I'm just, I feel really blessed at this moment in my life that, uh, you know, everything seems to be going in the right direction. Who knows how I'll feel tomorrow? You know, who mm-hmm. knows what will happen? But right now, I feel that I feel very grateful and I feel I'm very, very happy uh, heading in toward the last quarter of the year. Yes. Um, this is this. We've come through the, the pandemic stronger. Mm-hmm. And I hope, you know, I, I hope that anything that we do helps heal not just individual people's hearts and entertains them, but heals our country, too. And I, I love this country, and it's been through a lot. So, mm. you know, they, 
I don't want to get maudlin about it, but yeah, this is, I, I feel a lot of responsibility because I feel that I've been really blessed. Horror can heal. Horror can heal. Horror so, can heal. That's right. There we yep. go. Brian, I'm going to end with you. So my Fun. final thoughts are, I appreciate the two of you coming on and just to kind of give us a little glimpse at how you guys work. Cause it's pretty awesome. Um, and yeah. to, also check out their uh their podcast it's life writing podcast some of their some of their guests have been roy wood jr Patton oswald nk jemison um the list is uh jordan peele too uh, well we we did a record we did recordings of jordan peele from oh, okay i thought he was on skyped into our class but mm. but it's sort of like he was a guest yeah you guys totally have, count it yeah and then the stephen graham jones um episode was really good too some interesting talk about fatherhood that Stephen brings up. Uh, yeah, is a lot Thank of good you. stuff. Yeah, and the Reformatory is a great book. Um, definitely have to check that out. Uh, sorry to not go ahead. No, just you know, just trying to like roll like you guys. <laughs> yeah, Brennan. Thanks, thanks for having us on. Absolutely, Brian, right, take absolute us away. Pleasure. Sign us out. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, uh, I'll echo Steve and say, buy Tanana Reeves' book. Uh, the Reformatory is awesome. You will absolutely love it. Um, and Tanana Reeves, we're so uh, honored to have you back. And we're so pleased, Stephen, that you could join us because mm. the dynamic of this conversation was a lot of fun. I, <laughs> no lie, I could sit here for another two hours and just listen to the two of you go back and forth. Um, That's all we but, try to do on our podcast, you know, is yeah. to have people feel like they're sitting, you know, they're fly on the wall in our kitchen conversations. This yeah. is the way we are all the time. And That's awesome. It's, it's the and great, I gathered that. Great, yeah. It's a great joy. You know, it it's is. a great joy. Love you, baby. Love I didn't you, even, sweetie. I didn't even have time to ask the question from Joe Hill or bring up uh, another black uh, movie with um, that just came out about the Korean <laughs> War. So maybe next time, because those are interesting. Maybe, maybe next time. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Wow. Um, I was back. Brennan, do you want to sign us out? Yeah. Uh, well, thank you both. And uh, you have many choices in podcasts. Thank you for choosing us. Uh...